Our passage today in 2 Samuel chapter 6 can be a difficult one. It is one that leads us to a sense of fear. Have you ever been afraid? Now, I'm not just talking like your little brother jumped out from behind a corner and scared you in your house at night. I'm talking about like truly afraid. Like maybe you were messing around with Mother Nature and Mother Nature just reminded you of the fact that it's a lot more powerful than you are. Or maybe you were, you're dealing with a piece of machinery and that machinery, you just had a close call and, and you just nearly realized you lost it. I was thinking about one of those this morning, uh, more than a decade ago, I was out dove hunting with, with my brothers and I was walking across a field, shotgun in hand, the birds were flying, it was a beautiful day, a lot of fun. And uh, they were flying so well, you just always had to be ready. And I was walking across the field, seeing if I could stir a bird up. And all of a sudden, I stumble. All of a sudden, I nearly fall. And I had made a mistake. While I was walking, my finger was on the trigger. Right. Praise God. No one was near me. The gun was pointed in the right direction, but I accidentally set that gun off, not meaning to. I don't know if you've ever, ever had a feeling like that, where it's like the pit just drops out of your stomach and you are just struck with a fear of like, that could have been so much worse. That could have been so bad. And after that fact, and after that event, I just had this new, um, new reverence, <laughs> like new fear. And I was reminded that what I held in my hand was a lot of power, it could cause a lot of destruction, that a fear of something can be good. And sometimes we need to fear. If you're new to Texas and we have one of these flash floods and you come up to this low point in the road, and you see the water rushing over the road, like you should stop and you should have some fear. Because that water might be much deeper than you realize. And the power behind it is something beyond your strength, is something beyond your control. What we find in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is that David was interacting with a power that I don't think he understood. And this text leads us to a sense that our God is a God who is to be feared. As I read the text, I came across three different truths about God that I think will help us to understand what it means to fear God. Because that's a difficult concept, isn't it? When we read the scriptures, and the scripture says at the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, we ask the question, what does it mean to fear God? Does it mean that we need to tremble and, and be afraid? Does it mean we have this reverential awe? I think this text helps to give us a more complete and a more full picture of what it means. The first truth we see about God that helps us to learn how to fear God correctly is that we learn that our God is a holy God. Up to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we find that David has consolidated his power as king. There are no more rival kings. There are no more rival generals. He is the undisputed king of all Israel. 
All the other tribes have come to him. They've sworn allegiance to him. David has established a new capital city where he is fortified and he is secure. David has been exercising these military victories and where the Philistines used to cut Israel in half with these different fortifications and these different garrisons, he has run the Philistines out of Israel. What better way to show everyone that he was God's chosen and anointed king than to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem? Now, if you're somewhat new to the faith, you might hear the ark of God and you might think of something like this, right? You think of Noah's ark there in Genesis chapter 15. But there are two different things called the ark of God in the Bible. You have Noah's big boat, but you also have what he's referring to in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant, God gave the orders to Moses to construct this while Israel was in the wilderness. They were going from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. It was a wooden chest overlaid with pure gold. On the inside of this chest, you had things like the Ten Commandments of God. You had this golden vessel filled with manna that the Israelites ate as they were in the wilderness. In this chest, there was part of the staff of Aaron that budded into an almond branch that showed God's power. That's what was inside the ark I think even more amazing would be the the lid of the ark. Whereas the rest of the ark was wood covered in gold, the lid was pure gold. And you had these cherubim on the top hammered out of the same piece of gold. And this piece of the ark was called the mercy seat. Once a year, the priests of Israel would go into the holies of holies in the tabernacle and later on the temple And they would make sacrifices, sprinkling blood on the lid. Why? To receive atonement for the sins of Israel. As we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at the Psalms, what we find is that the mercy seat was considered by Israel to be the throne of God. It represented God in the midst of his people. That's what the ark was. And I want you to imagine the scene that we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark of God had been at Baal Judah for the past 70 years. And David summons up representatives from every tribe in Israel. The 12 tribes send different delegates. He has 30,000 troops to form this procession moving the ark into Jerusalem. They take the ark of God, they place it on a new ox cart, one that had not been used for any other work. It's for this purpose and this purpose alone. And as they begin to move the ark, David brought musicians. And there was dancing and there was celebrating. It was a joyous occasion. But then the unthinkable happens. The oxen stumbles The cart moves and the ark of God, the throne with a mercy seat upon it, shifts. And Uzzah, who was walking 
beside the ark, sees it happen, and maybe instinctually reaches out his hand and places his hand upon the ark. And Uzzah is struck dead. Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that the anger burned against Uzzah, struck him dead. And the reason was because of his error or because of his irreverence. What does Scripture mean by this? Why was God's anger kindled against him? And what we find is that there were all sorts of mistakes happening in this text. One of the things that we learn is that though David would inquire of the God when he went to battle the Philistines at the end of chapter 5, David never inquired of God about moving the ark. He presumptuously just said, I'm going to move it. Not only was he presumptuous in this, but then whenever he went out to the ark, he did not bring any priests with him. There were no Levites, there were no Kothites out there who were trained to move the ark. They did not cover the ark with the cloth that was specially made to cover it so people's eyes wouldn't look upon it. If you remember the picture of the ark, it had these poles that went through the ringlets and it was designed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. But what did David do? Rather than using the poles as was designed and commanded by God, he put the ark of God on a new cart. Whenever we studied 1 Samuel, uh, goodness, a year or two ago, one of the things that we remember is that at one point in time, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistine army. And it brought all sorts of plagues against them. And they wanted to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant of God. And you know how they got rid of the Ark? They put it on a new cart and sent it out. David wasn't moving the ark the way that God commanded the ark to be moved. He was moving the ark the way that the pagan Philistines moved the ark. And so whenever Uzzah put his hand up on the ark of the covenant, as was written in the word of God, whoever touches the ark, they should die. Why? Why would they die? Scripture tells us that God is holy. And since God is holy, his ark was holy. This is what it says in Psalm 99. Psalm 99, notice what he talks about uh, when he says enthroned between the cherubim. In Psalm 99, he's speaking about the ark of the covenant. He says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great, awe-inspiring name. He is holy. One of the things that we need to realize as human beings is that God, our creator, is a holy God. And this trait of God, this characteristic, this attribute of God is hard for us to wrap our mind around because we are not holy. There are certain attributes of God that he communicates to his creation, that he gives to his image bearers. But there's a whole other set of attributes that belong to God himself that he does not share with us. And God's holiness is one of those traits. 
God's holiness refers to the fact that he is completely other. There is no other God like him. There is nothing in creation that is like him in his holiness. He is transcendent. And the distance between God and man is great. Not only that, but holiness refers to God's moral purity. Richard Lentz, a professor at Notre Dame, writes this, The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and also the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. When Uzzah reached out with his mortal sin-stained hand and touched the ark, he was touching something that is holy. And that is what struck him down. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, writes about this story. And I think what he writes is, is very helpful for us to understand it. This, listen to what R.C. Sproul wrote. But the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There is nothing about the earth that would desecrate the ark. There is nothing about the earth that would pollute the throne of God or desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what the earth called it to do, being dirt. It gets dry, it turns to dust. You mix water in it, it turns to mud. The earth, day in and day out, was doing exactly what the dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was the hand of man, Sproul writes, that God said, I do not want it on this throne. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God and God killed him. Every human being that draws breath on this earth needs to be reminded of this truth that God hates sin. And one of the things that should strike a little fear in us or great fear in us is the fact that we are so comfortable with it knowing that God hates it so much. How did David respond whenever he saw Uzzah drop on the ground dead? In verse 8, it tells us, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place outburst against Uzzah as it is today. Verse 9 says, David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Probably like some of us, David was angry. Wasn't Uzzah sincere? Wasn't he trying to do the right thing? Sincerity and intention of heart doesn't matter if you're breaking God's law. God's law is eternal and it is good. David feared and he said, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? 
Throughout Scripture, we are taught to fear God. I think one of my favorite passages on the fear of God is found in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you're taking notes, you have a pen, jot this reference down because it's one I think it's worthwhile to go back to and read. We'll mention a few times in the rest of our sermon today. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God? So what does God ask of us? He asks us to fear him. But then it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It has this word, by. So not only does it tell us what God demands and what God expects of us to fear him, but then it tells us how we ought to fear him. Except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all of his ways to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. We fear God by walking in his ways. What the word of God I think is calling us today is not to be comfortable in our sin, not to be comfortable in our errors, to let the word of God speak truth into our life. And this is the way that God is saying, this is how you live your life. It might be cruel of God to have all these rules about moving the ark and he kept them secret. But they weren't a secret. God had told the nation of Israel how to move the ark. And he has told us how we ought to live our lives. If we want to walk in the fear of God, it means we obey the commands of God. We fear God by obeying God. But then we see this other attribute of God in this text. And we see the attribute of of God's goodness. If all we have is the fear of God saying, I've got to obey, I've got to obey, I've got to obey. And there's just this fear of condemnation and judgment and that's all there was. It wouldn't be a healthy fear. Might be a true fear because God's judgment is coming on on the ungodly, but it wouldn't be the fear that God is calling us to live. A true fear of God not only causes us to, to, to obey the commands of God, but a true fear of God causes us to delight in the goodness of God. Look at what happens in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 10. So David was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. I wonder what it was like on that day to have Uzzah drop dead from touching the ark. And you have 30,000 people celebrating, and all of a sudden, it just goes to dead silence. The instruments are lowered. The dancing stops. And everyone is struck with a fear of the holiness of God. I wonder what David thought about for the next three months in his palace, pacing back and forth, 
Say, am I the Lord's anointed? If I am God's king, why can't the ark come here? What's going on? But then David gets a report about Obed-Edom's house. That Obed-Edom and his house was receiving the blessing of God. We don't know what this blessing looked like. Maybe his crops were doing fantastic. Maybe children and more children were born into his house. Maybe his business ventures were successful. We don't know. Maybe ill people received health. We don't know. But it was so much blessing that the word got back to David that the ark did not just bring with it judgment. And the presence of God just didn't bring judgment, but it also brought blessing. A true fear of God drives us to obey God, but a true Fear of God also opens our eyes up to the goodness of God. I think this is hard for us to grasp with, 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 with this narrative, but there's, there's this other narrative that I think can also be helpful, and it's in the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? It's a great, it's a great book uh, about this, this other world that C.S. Lewis wrote about. And in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, in this allegory, uh, you have this world created called Narnia, uh, and there is a, a picture of our God and a picture of Christ in Narnia called Aslan. And Aslan is, is depicted as this ferocious lion. And you have these four uh, children from earth somehow end up in Narnia, and they're finding out about Aslan from, of course, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, this, this is the discussion they have. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. One of the children, Susan, says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything? about safe. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Is our God safe? Not for us. Not for us in our sin. He is not tame. He is the king, I tell you. But the king is also good. Think about what it says in John 3.16. For God, this terrifying God of holiness, loved the world so much, he loved it in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 5 says this, But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by the blood of Christ, will we be saved through him from God's wrath? It is because of the goodness and the kindness and mercy of God that we don't share the same fate as Uzzah. That the blood of Christ cleanses us 
from all the pollution of sin. That we would not desecrate the presence of God when we meet him face to face. Not because we are good on our own. Not because we have kept all the laws on our own. Because we haven't. But rather because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. That is the goodness of our God. A true fear of God. Yes, we see him in his holiness uh, in our call to worship, we talked about Isaiah uh, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. The, 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 his robe filled the temple. Do you remember Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. But this God he feared and terror is also the God that had his angels reach out and atone Isaiah's sin. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. We're going to come back to that. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God? One, by walking according to all of his ways, but secondly, to love him. We love him because we have seen and tasted the goodness of God. We've experienced the love of Christ. So we fear him and we love him and we walk in his ways. And, and we see the next truth about God here is, is, is that he is worthy. That Deuteronomy passage said we walk in his ways, we love him, but then we worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. When David heard about the blessing of Obed-Edom, what did he do? We find out in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it tells a story again, gives us some new details. It says that David changed, that he feared the Lord. So this time he did not act presumptuously. This time he inquired of the Lord. This time he went and he found the Levites. This time they came with the poles to carry the ark on the shoulders and not on a new cart. And like last time, seeing the terror of God, but seeing the goodness of God, they brought the ark into Jerusalem with dancing and singing, with generosity, handing out all sorts of bread. David was dancing with all of his might. Tell me, adults in the room, when was the last time you did anything? With all of your might. You ever think about that? I mean, sometimes, like, I have little kids, but even, like, the extreme little ones, like, three years old, four years old, like, have you ever seen them, like, play with all their might so much and so long? It's like they just fall over asleep. Like, they're just done. They go with all their might. We are told that David here danced and he humbled himself with all of his might. He was worshiping God. Deuteronomy 10 says we worship our God with all of our heart, all of our soul. What does that look like? It means that we have no other gods beside God. When I got married 18 years ago, I made a covenant with my wife. And in that covenant, I was saying there will be no other women. No other woman will receive my affection. No other women will, will have my eyes, will have my heart, that my wife gets it all. Because I'm in a covenant with her. 
When we make a covenant with God through Christ, we are saying there is no other God. That God will be our God. That we will not look to security more than we will look to God. We will not look to wealth or position or power or respect and hold these things up as ultimate above God. But our God will be supreme above all. Isaiah chapter 11, hundreds of years after this event in 2 Samuel 6, was making a prophecy about Christ, about Jesus. And this is what he says. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Speaking of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That passage is talking about Jesus. And it's saying that Jesus will have a fear of the Lord. That he will know intimately the holiness of God. He will know intimately the goodness of God. And when you hold those two things together, what you have is delight. We live in a day and age where we have so much more than previous generations. We have more comfort. We have more wealth. We have more conveniences. But we also have more fear and more anxiety. You ever notice that? We have more fear. We have more anxiety. And I think one of the reasons why we have more fear and more anxiety when we have more is because we don't have a full understanding of what it means to fear God. Charles Spurgeon, writing on the fear of God, says this. The fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. Brothers and sisters, seeing the holiness of God, seeing the goodness of God, dedicating your life for it and delighting in it is a way to chase out the other fears in your life. I think Scripture's call to you today is to say, choose your fear. Do you want to have the fear and anxiety of this world or do you want the fear of a holy and good God? Let the fear of God chase out all other fears in your life. Let's stand and pray.